My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. I liked it, I craved it, I wanted more, and I took it. I took it like I needed it, like my life had a limit, and if I didn't get as much of it as I could, I'd quit breathing the next instant. Kristen Ashley, until the sun falls from the sky. Have you ever felt this dependent on something? How about with falling in love? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so thankful that you're listening. Today we're going to explore love addiction, a behavior pattern that is basically that, an obsession with falling or being in love with a wonderful expert I'll introduce shortly. While love addiction isn't listed currently as an official clinical diagnosis, these patterns can be as life-altering and destructive as drug addiction, as any addiction. You may recall a bit about this topic from my chat with filmmaker Charlene de Guzman, who struggled with both love and sex addiction. This is the first time we'll be covering love addiction on its own, potentially, along with unique challenges being lesbian or otherwise LGBTQ identifying can add to the mix. We'll also weigh in for a listener who grew up in the heart of the Bible Belt and wants to better advocate for her sexual desires. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for Girl Boner Extras at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. I send updates about once a month featuring upcoming events, behind-the-scenes fun, and more. You can also find my Girl Boner book on Amazon and most anywhere books are sold. And yes, there's an audio version, which I got to narrate. It was so fun. In addition to essays about my personal journey, such as the orgasm that changed my life and my brain on orgasm, I interviewed over 40 experts and people with lived experiences on everything from healing from sexual trauma to sex toys, oral sex, and solo play, highlighted relevant research findings and frisky facts, and included journaling prompts at the end of each chapter. It's spicy and inclusive and basically my heart, and I would love it if you would check it out. You can also pre-order Girl Boner Journal, a companion book full of stories and activities to take your sexual empowerment journey deeper on Amazon. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Lauren to the show. She's a licensed psychologist, relationship coach, consultant, author, educator, activist, and international speaker. Dr. Lauren has dedicated herself to women's empowerment, the field of LGBT affirmative psychotherapy, and is a pioneer in lesbian affirmative therapy. Her first book, Lesbian Love Addiction, Understanding the Urge to Merge and How to Heal When Things Go Wrong, is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can get a free excerpt at lesbianloveaddiction.com. She also has a practice, a private practice in Beverly Hills and Woodland Hills, and is currently offering online masterclasses for lesbians looking to find their soulmate. She's also working on a book I'm so excited about. It's about internalized misogyny and how to heal the trauma of growing up in a sexist world. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lauren. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, there's so much we could talk about. And I we have to already state that I'm going to have you back to talk more about your second book. Yay. Very excited. Uh, but your area, one of your areas of specialty involves the topic of your first book, love addiction, especially in lesbians. Would you share a bit about what prompted you? I know you're a wonderful clinician, but you also have personal experience with this. Yeah, actually, it's uh, it's interesting. I have, I basically healed myself from this problem. And I did whatever it took to get through it. And I was fortunate enough in that I got sober over 20 years ago. I just hit my 20-year anniversary for being off drugs and alcohol. So I had already been introduced to the 12 steps and the idea of recovery. And that was sort of my red pill, if you will, that kind of was my wake-up call to becoming more conscious and more awake and more aware. And I started doing a ton of inner work at that time. And I've been doing it ever since. Um, But it did, you know, that got rid of that one addiction, but then all these others sprouted up. I have kind of this addictive personality. I totally do, too. I get that. (laughs) It, like, has to go somewhere. Right. Right? And, I mean, you can find ways. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But it it is so interesting how it can, like, morph. You're like, oh, I've finished. No. (laughs) Not even close. Like, and so... Could you share a sign that you recognize that you were struggling with love addiction? Did you know the term? Like, were you associating with that term at the time? or did Not you even know? close. And what's so interesting, it's such a good question, August, because neither did my therapist. Like, nobody knew. And I'm coming in with all these relationship issues and, like, serial monogamy kind of, you know, like I was always into, you know, into something or... Um, and no therapist had any clue that there was something, a way to kind of describe it so that it could be focused on in a really effective way. Mm. So it was just, it went on and on and on and on, and I had no idea, wow. none. that's so interesting. What yeah. were some of the, the signs looking back? Okay, well, one of my biggest signs was there was one of my f- great loves, was someone that I went back to, I mean, you know, embarrassingly so, I went back to her, you know, 10 times, something like that. And each time, you know, she would break up with me and then she'd come back and she'd say, it would be different this time and you're the love of my life. And I loved all that flattery. I will not deny it. And she would promise me it would be different and I would take her back. And then the same thing would happen again. Mm. And finally, at first, I was like, why? And I think this is an important component. As I was in this mode of like, why are these kind of people picking me? And then eventually, she did it for the last time. And I said, the pattern is me. I'm the pattern. Forget her. Yes, I can go and continue to analyze Whatever's going on with her, because that makes me feel better. It tries to make, help me make sense of what's going on. But the reality is I'm the common denominator. And that was my first epiphany around it. Mm. And I had heard the term by then, like it was in the ethers, because I was teaching at Antioch University. But I was not ready. I actually did go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous for a while. But I was very much like, you know, not ready basically, and kind of just listening a little bit. And I didn't have a therapist that was supportive of it at all. He he didn't believe in it and all of this kind of stuff. So then I met my next girlfriend, 
And this is a woman that I had been sort of having my eye on for years. I'd had sexual dreams about her. Like, she was just kind of there for me. And when she gave me a call, I was like, it was game on. Yeah. For me, right? I just got excited for you. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yay. And, um, And it was by far probably the most painful relationship of my entire life. Oh. Yeah. And it... And I fell really hard. Like, I went, I was all in, right? Yeah. And I gave my heart on a platter, and then this person ended up not being available, ultimately. And I didn't know that going in, right? Uh, There were all the signs that she was available, that we were both available in the same way. Wow. And that changed at about the year mark, I would say, is when she moved in. And suddenly she wasn't available. And so what happened for me is I went into a tailspin that we can talk a little bit more about where I was obsessed with what's going on. Why isn't she available? I mean, it consumed my every thought. I think you just answered the question that came to me as you were explaining that, which was I remember times where I would – very early on, like I said, a teenager, I would break up with a boy repeatedly because I so loved that feeling of them coming back to me, which sounds really horrible to say as it comes out of my mouth. But there's that that rush, right? That's so exciting and it's enticing. And the difference between maybe just learning and growing and, oh, you know, it, that feels good to everybody to actually it being an obsession. Is yes. that the difference between a non-addiction and just learning along the way? Exactly. It really is. Because also I was not learning along the way. Do you know what I mean? In other words, like I kept repeating the same thing. I kept falling into the same patterns. I kept um, doing my same behaviors. And that was definitely an addiction to the falling in love process. Like I loved falling in love because there was a high. Yes. Right. And there's an actual chemical high that's going on, there, right? Yeah. Totally. There's all these amazing chemicals being dumped into our there's brain. There's nothing like it. No. It's that is... punch drunk. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's way better than heroin or all of these things that are super addicting, right? So Hypercolor like... world. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. And so when I really started to look back at everything, I realized that I had fallen in love or infatuation and, and many times and that I was so into that feeling. And when that started to burn off, which, by the way, always does for everybody, that really heightened one. You know, you can stay yeah, in love. It's supposed to. Yeah. yeah. It becomes deeper, richer, but not nauseating. You no. know, not so no. over the top. No. It's not supposed to go it's, on and on. And our, we're actually can't. Like, we can't sustain that. Like, it just It does doesn't. sound kind of impossible. Like, I try to imagine that feeling. How would you get things done? You know, it's so distracting. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're just like, you know, in fantasy land and everything's perfect. And part of the, part of the addiction for me was that I wouldn't look at the red flag signs. So I'd be in this falling in love process, and I would just, I'd, of course, have the house and the white picket fence and the whole thing in just a couple, like a couple weeks, you know, like totally going there to this, we're going to be together forever, this is it. And there might be a couple red flags, and people might even be saying to me, like, there's some red flags here. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. No, no, no. It's going to be fine. Yeah. It's going to be fine. This is really 
amazing. And, you know, of course, as that relationship continues and the the infatuation falls off and then the issues start to arise, whatever those are. Is that know? where the spiral started? Was it in the the coming down from because yeah. it's the breakup, it's all the red flags, it's the you can't get your fix. Yes. And it's also, I think at this point, it's, for me anyway, it, when I was in the addiction piece, it was like a, a rupture. It can be little or big depending on who you are and what you're sensitive to. But her pulling away even just a little bit from like this bubble of like, oh my God, you're amazing. We have everything in common. Like, you know, this is just, you're the perfect person for me. And there might be like this, even like, nah, I'm really not that into it. You know, I'm not into that thing that we talked about. I don't like it. And that would cause a rupture? Yeah, it would cause this like, wait, what? You know, and then I would- Everything was so great. Yes, yes. I mean, it could be that subtle. Um, And so for me in this situation, there was this anxious kind of, feeling inside that I was saying the obsession and then what would happen was I would start to demand more from her like why aren't you paying more attention to me or why don't you want to have sex or blah 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 like things like that and then I would and that would push the personal more away so it was sabotaging the relationship and you as well Yes. And how destructive did it become for you? Extremely. Like, it just got worse and worse. And like depression? And fighting. A lot of fighting. Um, a lot. Uh, definitely depression. Um, just seeing, you know, looking for signs of abandonment all the time. Like, sort of being obsessed with that. Like, oh. She's not into me. Oh, she's rejecting me. And those are like core, I think they're core things for most people. And as I continue to do inner work and I do even do like my step work, it's like I see that abandonment and rejection are very deep core wounds for me. And even when it's not personal, there's that little girl in me that can take it personal. Does that make sense? It does. So those are... Attachment styles, correct? Yes, exactly. And could you speak to just in general what that is and when it starts? So it, what we do know basically is it starts early on. And I think there's a number of factors that play into it. It's like who you come into the world as, you know, because we come in with our own ways of being in the world. And then you meet your caregiver and let's just say for the sake of it it's usually a mother right and then it depends on what's going on with the mother like is she really young and not that you know aware of her own stuff does she have a lot of stuff is it easy for her to be close to her child or is it hard for her to be really close to the all the needs of the baby does she have postpartum depression like you know there's just so many things that can go on did she deal with her own stuff at all like maybe she had an unavailable parent and it affected her maybe her partner isn't that available and she's feeling very low or depressed or whatever and all of that can affect the attachment to the child so one of the things that's so interesting about attachment style that i love is that it's one of the most empirically based 
uh, psychotherapeutic information that we have. The, the studies started back in the 50s, and they started studying babies from – like in utero, they would have a you know a questionnaire with the mom, and then the mom would come in at six months, and then one year, and then at eighteen months, and they would just put the baby and the mom in a room, and then the mom would leave, and then they would they would watch what the child would do, and depending on how the child would react to the mom leaving, they could start guessing what kind of attachment style the child had. Accurately. So if the child yeah. didn't care, yeah, it was called avoidant. If the child really had a hard time being soothed with the mom leaving, they would call it anxious. If the child kind of protested and cried a little bit beginning, but then were okay and there was, you know, and started playing with the other person in the room, they would call that a secure attachment. So securely attached people tend to partner up earlier in life and have basically healthy relationships. Of course, they have issues, but, you know. Right, but they had good role models and yes, experience attaching yes. in a healthy way. Yes, and then they attach, you know, you know, in that way, like in their 20s, and they can stay married forever and things like that. So um, if you don't, if you end up in that insecure realm, and, you know, the percentages are sort of all over the place, um, you will take that into your adult relationships when you start having them. Right. So um, you will be avoidant. Now, avoidant style has gotten kind of a bad rap because they have, you know, they can hurt the most. But what I think is really important piece about this is I think it's relationship dependent. So even though, say, you're more avoidant style, you can actually get into a relationship where someone's not available and become anxious. Now, that makes sense to me. If you're an anxious style and you get into a relationship with someone who is more anxious and then you start feeling like they're too much, you can become more avoidant. Sure. Oh, I like that. So it is pretty nuanced, too. Yeah, exactly. But there are these sort of patterns and things yes. you can see. And I'm sure personality plays a little bit of a role. Like some people are just more social, but they could still be anxious and avoidant, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. So one of the things, when this when this... When this sort of information first came out, which was Pia Melody was writing a book called, you know, about love addiction. She was one of the first pioneers in this field. Um, she would say, you know, anxious and avoidant always attached to each other. Well, that does happen in the dynamic often when it's really a distressful and problematic and painful situation. But I don't think you're I'm, I'm not saying it's as fixed as that for the person. You know, I see. I myself have been both anxious and avoidant. <laughs> so one person can be, as you said, multiple, but you might have one stronger yes. one, like that, one, one you kind of one. fall into more easily. Yes, that feels more like your usual. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so knowing what your attachment styles are is that part of the healing process. From I think love it's addiction? extremely helpful. So, you know, figuring out what it is, taking the tests, you can do it online, you can, there's a couple books that give some good tests about it, and um, I have a test in my online course, and when you know your style, then you can actually work on it. So, for instance, say you have an attachment style, and you find yourself in a relationship, and you're kind of finding yourself asking for attention often, and you're not always getting it, and it's really making you feel bad about yourself. You can start working on 
modifying that and seeing when it's good to do and when it's maybe not as appropriate. Maybe it's more of your own stuff in that moment. Like, are you feeling anxious about something else? Are you just feeling insecure about something or you're not feeling so good? Have you not been soothing yourself enough? Are you not Uh, been giving yourself enough self-care or, you know, where are you on the self-love range? You know, things like that. When you can check into all of that, then you're coming to your relationship with a greater sense of wholeness and a stronger sense of self. And then you're not putting everything onto the relationship. These kind of dynamics, what happens is the relationship is under too much pressure. Ah, that makes sense. Especially you said that one common one is maybe an anxious person and an avoidant person. That seems like a really cataclysmic combo. It's cataclysmic. Because the anxiety would just be revving up because they're being avoided. And, and then the person avoids more because the person's too anxious. Like, it sounds like it could really spiral. But what you were just saying makes so much sense from a, a practical standpoint of bringing awareness. Because yes. once you have awareness, then it's a tool. Exactly. But kind of maybe overwhelming at first if you have a lot of these issues, right? Yes, it can definitely be overwhelming and you might, you know, have to deal with some sort of like, you know, denial or like, oh, I don't really want that to be the situation. Or you might feel um, what we call like um, resistance, you know, to kind of really doing what you need to do. It's a process. Right. It's a process. Be gentle with yourself, but continue to like the commitment to saying, okay, I'm going to do what it takes to kind of heal this. Because you know what? Ultimately, whether you're in relationship or not, you're going to be better off by having healed this. Yeah. You know, and then it, then your life, life is not ruled by whether you're in relationship or not. And then I think that really helps you actually find a really healthy relationship if mm. that's what you want. That's really inspiring and encouraging, too. It's so interesting to me how relationships tend to bring up old wounds, and it's a chance to heal or not. Exactly. Yeah. Or keep so, – so one of the things that happens if you don't heal it is you'll find yourself repeating the same patterns with different people, right, and over and over again. And even if you sometimes are – you know, not that into it. And maybe because your heart was so broken that you didn't heal it wholly. And then you jump into a new relationship and you're actually not available because you aren't really completely over the last one. Yeah. Right. Or you can be like anxiously always getting into a relationship because it's really scary to be alone, but you don't know that. Yeah. You're not really totally aware of that. So you keep repeating this thing and you, and you just kind of end up picking the, you know, someone that, that you kind of have an initial chemistry or a connection to, and there isn't, they're not necessarily the right fit, but you don't take the time to find that out. Does that make sense? Yes, because it does take time. Yes. And you have to also get past the initial rush part yes. to get to really know the person, because exactly. at first it's really kind of all about you in a way. <laughs> it's like it's how this person makes me feel. Yes. And so to go deeper and to, to be continually healing, what was – do you think a big turning point in your healing or when did you start to really feel better? Oh, it's such a good question. So there is this term in, you know, kind of when you're healing in the sex and love addiction world is you do a year of like, you know, no relationship basically. And you just focus on yourself and you make that commitment, right? At least kind of around a year. And, um, 
during that time, if it's if it if it is involved with a hardcore breakup, it can have something what's called withdrawals. And these withdrawals can last a long time, and they're really painful, and it's worse than coming off of like a substance. And it can la- and it can be like very- physically, emotionally, you just feel a hundred percent. And one of the ways to look at it is like the cent- our central nervous system is very impacted at that point, and it's almost like the central nervous system is like a broken leg. So you have to kind of heal it like you would a broken leg. Put it in a cast and you can't walk on it for a long time. And it takes it just takes a while to heal this, but it can be the most revolutionary act you can do because during that time when you're going through this sort of detox of your old behaviors and your love addicting patterns and you know healing from a painful relationship you will do years and years of healing work mm-hmm. and you can start really healing even your childhood wounds because you're not acting out patterns that keep you just in that wound now you're actually dealing with it and healing it and um i did that and and it was Probably one of the most painful times of my entire life, without a doubt. It was harder. It was for a year. You did, yeah, wow. and it was harder than getting sober from alcohol. I mean, it was wow. way harder, way harder. And at that time, I couldn't like go into treatment for a year, so I had to like work and be in my life oh, and gosh. like deal with this, you know, these feelings and having and... almost an invisible illness in a way. Yes, where nobody knows this is happening, and they're like, "Oh, you're fine." Yes, and having to put on a face all the time and. I can't even imagine. It yes. sounds really intense. It's really intense. And then I remember um, I did go to like a two-week place. Uh, I know I went to a one-week place in the Midwest, and it's like a psychology workshop kind of a place that you go. And I set up a plan on how to deal with my problem, and I, you know, I went into the program, and I did all kinds of things, and I stuck to it, and slowly... Not only did I start to feel better, but I started to feel more empowered and more myself and definitely practiced a lot of self-love and incorporated self-care in a way that I had never done before and started putting myself first in a way and then dealing with whatever selfish feelings I felt around putting myself first and um, came out of it feeling amazing, like Probably the best I'd ever felt, mm. honestly. Wow. And it was really and very empowering. That is so inspiring. I feel like so many people can relate to the darkness and to hear someone having come through it that you committed. I'm re- It's one of the best examples of take care of yourself first. Yeah. The most intense, like a year. It's not just I'm going to have a self-care Saturday. It's mm. it's no, I have, a, I have a year and self-care is so much harder when it's – it's not actually fun yet. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're having to do all this work. Yes. And, and that's healing. such a good point. It wasn't fun for a while. It was just necessary. Mm. You know, it was like survival. It was wow. like, and I, and I, it was very motivating. And I hope that anyone who's going through this can really hear that because it was motivating because I, I just didn't want to do the old way anymore. I was like, that has got to end. It doesn't work, and it's killing me. Mm. And you know how you had said in the beginning it's more of an invisible addiction? 
But I believe it's very deadly. I think The Great Gatsby, by the way, which has been made into nine movies. I don't know if people know this. Wow. But it's been made into nine movies because it's such an archetypal story about love addiction. You know, he is so... Addicted to her, he'll do anything to get her, and she actually is not interested. And we so much romance, yes. romanticize all of these things. Yes. It's like, and it gives these horrible messages to people, especially to girls who grow up learning that they are supposed to find this perfect love that's going to sweep them off their feet. <laughs> yeah. And that it's going to be perfect. Like, I think part of my addiction to the beginning of the falling in love phase was that message I had internalized was that it will stay that way because the story always ends there, right? Unless you see something like Great Gatsby where you see really the torment. But again, they're not, you're not really told when you watch a movie like that what you're actually seeing is, a, is something that's very real in society. It's still glamorized. Or a lot of times what I would see in movies, because I'm really into films, right, and I was watching them a lot, is that the person that wasn't that into you would have an epiphany and come back, right? And that's a story that is told a lot, but doesn't really happen all the time. That, so, I've never thought about that. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they have this epiphany without doing any work. They're like, they walk away and they're like, oh, no. <laughs> they're eating a sandwich and then all of a sudden, oh, I actually do want you. <laughs> That's healthy. <laughs> yeah. You know. That's really it, interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Wow. And so for a lot of folks going through this as well, music may be what um, really helps carry them through. For me, it was, you know, kind of movies and then starting to understand what message I was being told that was not helpful. You know, and kind of going, oh, I'm not believing that anymore. That's actually the myth, right? For some, it you know, it's the lyrics and songs, maybe what you listen to for the first six months of your sabbatical. And um, just hearing that, you know, that there's so many songs are about heartache and you're being your heart being broken or not working out or and then you can feel kind of validated but also remember that that's not to glamorize it like see it for what it is right I love that and music being so powerful it makes me think of like for I for example I play guitar and sing a little bit just for myself and I write songs when I'm really really sad right. it's you're healing yourself right so the fact that people can listen to music and there are so many songs about heartache yes that's actually a really beautiful thing because it is this kind of universal way to have that support when you probably feel pretty isolated exactly. and as though you're the only person dealing with this which you're not right right because exactly. this is pretty common it's pretty common I think it's also one of these things that is still under discussed. And, you know, I love how you said it's not even in the um, DSM-5 yet. There was a big fight over whether sex addiction would get in there, as yeah. you know, right? Yep. And it didn't make it yet. And they're, you know. They have, like, compulsive sexual behaviors. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's not really what we are doing in the field. There's, like, so much going on that about is healing so this. refreshing you know? to hear because what bothers me so much about disqualifying th those terms is it's telling people that their struggles are not valid. Exactly. It seems so, so painful and destructive. And I feel like so much of the resistance comes from people thinking that it's people saying, we don't believe in, you know, 
it, a lot of it kind of can come from the kind of right wing sex stuff is what they think is happening. So I understand why they think, oh, these people who are against sex ed are saying there's no such thing as sex addiction. People are just blaming their libido or their cheating behaviors. Right. But in reality, I mean, I've met so many people and heard from so many people who are struggling with this. And I feel like women feel more shame about it because of the societal messages that you know, we're not supposed to have compulsions for sex. And a man might feel more shame for being too romantic. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so well said. Yeah, well said. That's so true. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, the shame for women on multiple levels, particularly around sex and, you know, need and all of that, right? Exactly. Which actually ties in pretty well with this question I have from a listener who wrote about her own dilemmas she's experiencing right now. This question comes from Wanton Taco, which is probably my favorite pseudonym I've heard from a listener. (laughs) So big points for that, Wanton. Uh, And Wanton wrote this. I am working my way through your book and taking vigorous notes. I have learned so much and I'm grateful for women like you. Thank you so much for saying that, Wanton. I'm very grateful for women like you. That's so sweet. She went on to say, I'm from the absolute heart of Dixie in the Bible Belt, so our sex education is limited. I had never seen a condom until my 20s because it was considered advocacy of sexual encounters. Mm-hmm. When I went to a doctor's appointment with a concern, the doctor told me the best way to experience sexual pleasure and avoid STDs was to abstain until marriage. As you can imagine, this was not what I wanted to hear. She went on to share some about her personal struggles and then added this. Something I still struggle with is communication of my needs. I listened to so many of your podcasts and hear women share and think, oh, that is me. But in application, I have a hard time telling my partner what I need. I find that I go into actual sex with the idea that it is a 50-50 chance I will get gratification. For instance, I get embarrassed when I am on top and doing things that give me pleasure because I begin to get self-conscious and afraid they are not getting anything out of what I'm doing. So eventually I stop, just not climax, because I'm afraid what I'm doing isn't their tea. For example, if a partner is being too overbearing on my clit, I'll try and grab their hand, but not bring myself to say anything. And I'm afraid to just tell them to touch my nipples. I think it's partially the shame I have that women should not be so explorative or as vocal about our desires. What is your advice in the situation or things that you have seen help women put aside their objectifications, and embrace themselves unapologetically. Sincerely, Wanton Taco. So I love your question so much, and you are not alone. Trust me, so many people, especially women, have difficulty standing up for our own sexual needs and desires. And I think you're 100% right that societal messaging is contributing. I also want to say how completely badass you are for pursuing the empowerment you weren't permitted early on. That takes so much strength and courage. And honestly, I think you're already on the right path. You are reading and studying and seeking out resources. You're showing awareness of your challenges and where you would like to go. That you're striving to embrace yourself unapologetically, like that phrase was in your email. That says so much to me. But I also think a few of these steps might help. So one is 
know what you really want first, which I think can be helped with solo play, masturbation, checking in with yourself emotionally, and doing those journaling exercises in the Girl Boner book, or just journaling in general. I feel like it's such a good way to get thoughts out without any judgment. And another thing that can help, and I know I don't love this word either, but practice. I think advocating for ourselves really does get easier with time and repetition. And you know what's awesome? The benefits go so much farther than sex. I can almost promise you that. You'll stand up for yourself in so many other ways. So if I were you, I would literally practice stating my desires out loud. You know, when you're on your own, state your wants until doing so feels natural. You can also try bringing these topics up with a partner when you aren't in the middle of hanky-panky. And I'd start with supreme honesty. You know, say something like, I don't really feel comfortable talking about this, but I feel like I can trust you. You know, I want to work on this with you to create space where you can both be vulnerable and share together. And other than that, I think, honestly, keep doing what you're doing. Give yourself grace and time. It's a healing journey. It's one that so many of us have been on and are are standing in solidarity with you. And I have so much faith in where you're headed. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life greatsex.com had to say. Well, August, I think you can only imagine how awesome I think it is that um, this question comes from someone who has found Girl Boner and is well on her way to owning her pleasure and her sexual empowerment. And listen, I understand that it's not always easy um, that in this process of discovery, right, it's not linear. Um meaning that it's always better. There really are those ups and downs, um, whether it's from how the experience goes, which is why I always say try, try again, because uh, especially the first time we're trying anything new it may not go as well, or if it's because of a partner's response. Um, I sort of have an expression of anything that feels bad is never the last thing because you keep trying and the discovery of your own pleasure and empowerment, just so you know, it's a journey um, and think of it more like a good stock uh, that, you know, there's ups and downs, but most importantly, you always learn from where you've been. And so certainly in this case of a partner who, listen, I've often had men who say that some men do feel threatened um, by a sexual toy or something other than themselves, right? Giving their partner pleasure. But I would honestly say in almost 20 years of experience, that's the minority of men because the biggest turn on is feeling your partner's desire and their turn on. Um, So I definitely want to say, don't let any experience that may be on the downside or a closed-minded partner ever derail you. And I totally hear uh, and can identify with your struggle to communicate your needs. I think this is true for many, if not most women, um, in part because of the messaging that we get. I mean, here you're in the thick of the Bible Belt, and again, it could be cultural, it could be religious, but it could also be that as women you know, it's not uncommon, we default into sort of being caretakers, and sort of easily putting ourselves into that role where others come before ourselves. And when I think of that, I always um, sort of reflect on the, you know, but there's a reason they say to put the oxygen mask on yourself on an airplane, right before a child or someone else, because I really truly believe that when we um, take care of ourselves and own our pleasure, right, we actually have more to give. Um, And so I think that's sort of something to really help you to remember, which is the why and the value of the impact, not only for you, but for your partner, right? When you own 
your sexual pleasure. And I kind of want to say that, um, you know, again, you're not alone. Many women can feel self-conscious, body image, or embarrassed. But when you share with us that, you know, when you're on top and that you basically stop because you think that it's not doing anything for your partner, you know, I sort of take that step back and say, okay, no mind reading. Mind reading always gets us into trouble. And we don't know. And as I said earlier, honestly, the biggest turn on is feeling your partner being turned on and their desire. So anything that works for you, in my experience, absolutely works for your partner. Um, and to be honest, when if it doesn't, then that's part of the communication, right? Because it's really about having an ongoing conversation about your turn ons um, so that that's something you can both explore together. And, you know, I think that in that context, you, and you're not alone in this by a long shot, women so often cut off their own arousal, um, because they, you know, feel like it's taking too long or, you know, their partner's bored or distracted. And I, again, I'm just going to keep going back to that sense of your being present and turned on is the most important thing and is going to have the greatest impact. Um, you know, because it's a tragedy to think that, you know, as you said, you feel that women, um, and you're not again alone in this, um, we're not sort of given permission, um, or expected to be vocal about our desires, um, or even grappling with them. And I really just think that's a huge, the greatest tragedy of all, right? That, in my experience, and I, again, say this a lot, feeling pleasure in our bodies is a God-given right, and it's a right for us all, right? It's, it's not discriminatory in any way. We all have the ability to feel pleasure, and again, the pursuit, right, of that pleasure and that empowerment to experience it. So I really want to say embrace it. Own the discovery of all that turns you on. And in a sense, off also, so that you can communicate that too with your partner. And, I, you know, as I say that, you know, I think that's often what makes these sex communications uh, hard is because so often it's fraught with sharing the frustration or the disappointment. And I think that has a lot to do, in a sense, with the negativity bias in our brains. Um, but that's where I really want to invite you to start to talk about sharing with your partner what does turn you on and, um, most importantly, that exploration of doing that together because we only know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. And I think most importantly, if we talk about and express ourselves outside of the bedroom, of course, in this context, our wishes and longings, you know, oh, I really loved it when it gave me so much pleasure, you know, something I'm really, I don't know, I read about and I'm, you know, dying to sort of explore or try on or, you know, have you ever thought about a sex toy? And well, I wonder what impact that might be, right? The being casual and just sort of saying and expressing yourself, right? And sharing what you'd like to try on and what you want to experience with your partner, and then I think inside, you know, when and if it's in the moment, often that's where the nonverbal can be very helpful, where, again, you guide his hand or you sort of show, you know, use your own hand or, again, being on top in the way that um, you're moving your pelvis, like really letting them know, right, and showing them what gives you the most pleasure. So, again, when it's happening in the moment, I think nonverbal can be really effective and certainly outside of the bedroom, focusing on the positive, right? The wish and the longing versus the frustration. So listen, I think you're well on your way, as you said, in this journey. And I'm so thankful you asked this question because, you know, 
you're only at the beginning and I can't wait to honestly hear how this goes. So, you know, as I always say, definitely check in and um, again, wishing you the best in this journey and this lifelong pursuit of pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what you had to say about, you know, really advocating for your own needs and how much that helps other people as well. When you're somebody who really cares about how you exist in the world, sometimes that frame can be really motivating. Yeah, very much. Uh, The whole thing was really fascinating. And it's, you know, of course, so important to understand all the different cultural contexts going around in this country, you know, and how we have this huge country, but like, there's so many different messages going on. Um, You know, different, maybe religious or cultural pieces that you were saying. But at the same time, there is a universal message that women have been battling for 1000s of years, you know, this is not new, you know, and so we're at a, a really special time where we actually are having these conversations, these books are being written. Um, you know, there is, you know, women are empowering themselves and doing the work. Uh, and it's not easy, like we're battling something very strong inside because our moms carried it, our grandmothers carried it. So finding your voice and really putting it out there, especially around your sexual pleasure, is like, as you, you know, just the most brave thing you can do. And I just really applaud your listener for reaching out to you, taking notes of your book. I love that, you know, and just really taking care of herself in this way. I mean, I think also what, and I don't know, I mean, you, you, you do this all the time, but like, we can feel so selfish. Uh, You know, we have to battle this kind of idea as caretakers, as natural sort of, you know, oh, I want to, I want to relate and I want to make sure you're okay. But, you know, with sexuality, we also actually have to like, take care of ourselves. Yes. Or it doesn't get done. Yes. And wanting to care for people is a beautiful thing, right? But it really is that important. I mean, it is so, so important. And it's interesting because just as you were saying that, kind of the feeling selfish, after I read this, I felt a little uncomfortable. I was like, I just read somebody saying, I'm thankful you exist about myself. And I felt really weird. Yeah, exactly. I almost, I was going to stop and say, can we cut that? Just because, because it's a beautiful note. I loved reading it, and I'm so grateful to have received this this note. It went straight to my heart. It's why I do the work I do. But to actually stand in it and say that somebody felt that way about me felt braggy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, don't, don't you feel that way? Like, you know, I mean, there's yeah, going to be... be confident, but not too confident. Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, which completely ties in to your next book. So... I think my my sort of quick analogy is, um, you know, we're we're marching, we're resisting, we're um, voting, we're running for office, we're doing these amazing things, we're having these conversations, but a lot of it's very external oriented or extroverted, which is key. I mean, I am a big part of it, right? I'm like marching and doing a lot of it, right? But we also have to tend to our inner worlds. And that 
isn't given as much attention, unfortunately, but there's so much empowerment in that too. So my book is really about saying, yes, let's keep doing this. It's so important. But at the same time, I want us to go within and look at what we've internalized, the negative messages we've internalized that are, I mean, my research goes back to like 5,000 B.C., I mean, this has started a really long time ago. We're talking ancestors after ancestors after ancestors that becomes, you know, a systemic issue, right? So what's a really important part of it is it's not anti-men either. Like, I've never been that kind of feminist. I've never been that kind of LGBTQ person where it's like, anti-men. It's anti-systems. It's anti-ideology that is devaluing and and demoralizing and demonizing of a certain person, right? And that's what it's done for women. And so the idea is whether you know it or not, and I know that when we talk about our childhoods, we'll say like, okay, well, I had this sex edge class and it, and it, you know, I, heard so much and then I sort of took these messages away that I didn't really realize I took away but they really affected me when it came time to start having sex like I didn't really understand why I didn't know what to do or what you know, what I'm allowed to do or who I'm allowed to be same thing with misogyny when you grow up and you see that we are less than you internalize that message whether you know it or not it goes deep into this little unconscious re- reservoir inside of our minds and that it influences how we feel about ourselves how we reach our own potential how we show up in the world how ultimately how we are you know how we love ourselves or not so and how we feel about other women too I imagine right oh my gosh and that's such an important place i i'm glad you brought it up it's it's a huge part of what i'm going to be talking about is why women are so challenged by other women. And I personally went through a huge component of this myself. I was terrified of women. I didn't even realize it, you know, for a long time. Oh, and that's it's so, like so interesting, that concept, terrified of we're women and we're terrified of women. Like, right. What and, is that? Where and also drawn to them at the same time, like, right. you know, and having right. this really challenging internal conflict. And like, you know, if we can really have these conversations, understand where it came from. I'm really, in, I'm always interested in the why. Why Why is it like this? You know, why are we dealing with because it? Because how do we change it otherwise? You can't. So yeah. it starts the foundation and then the whole piece. So there's going to be an explanation of the why and how we got here and then what you can do to heal it and, and gain even more of a feeling of empowerment. Because mm. when you have the empowerment coming from within, it's forever. It's not contingent on whether this movement does this or this person gets elected or this thing changes or, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It really does. It really does. And I'm so excited to be able to read it one day because I feel like it'll answer questions that I've had that I don't really know what to do with, you know, where I'll see a woman acting in a certain way. Maybe she voted for somebody who is a child molester. Right. You know, or who abuses women and talks down, down to them constantly. And we need to have compassion for people who have learned that that's okay. Exactly. And know that we probably have some of those things in us because, as you said, it's been there forever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so well said. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. So awesome. Would you share uh, one more tip for somebody who is going through love addiction, who's struggling and feeling like they're quite alone? So, um, 
I'm, you know, a big fan of 12 Steps. Uh, I know it's not for everybody, but they are great for community as well. So even if it's like something that you're maybe not, you don't know that much about or a little intimidated, know that you're going to walk into a room, even if you don't completely identify as a sex or love addict. Like I did not identify as a sex addict when I walked in there. So I always say love addict just because you can modify in there. You can say whatever, you can say relationship, you can do whatever you want. But the point is, all of a sudden I was in a room with 25 other people that were also going through what I was going through. And then suddenly we were sharing our stories and we were not, I was not alone anymore. Mm -hmm. There's also online, like you can find telephone um, support groups. Um, Find someone in your area that may know something about this. Uh, I have my own online program that goes through like a whole component of how to heal this issue, you know, heal relationship issues for women who love women, no matter how you identify, and um, just go through a whole healing process. Um, Get the books. There's a number of books out there. There's uh, ones that are very straight oriented. There's some that are more inclusive. There's some that, so there's Pia Melodies. There's Stan Tank, and he, he wrote something called Wired for Dating and Wired for Love, and he really gets into the attachment piece as well. There's a book called Attach that really just explains the attachment um, styles. You know, just, just that's all it talks about. It's really interesting. Um, so there's just, you know, do your research. Um, there's a number of other um, books out there. And like, you know, like your reader was doing, uh, taking notes and, you know, finding yeah. out what else. A self-exploration where yes. you're studying and finding resources. And for people who are in the LGBTQ community, people who identify as lesbian, I imagine homophobia could play a role in their healing process. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, actually, that's such a great question. That's a big part of LGBTQ affirmative psychotherapy is actually looking at living in a homophobic world or an LGBTQ phobic world and then internalizing those messages as well and then not knowing it and then having, you know, issues with how you feel about yourself. Right. And then that goes and it definitely influences how you are in relationship as well. So it's another piece of the pie, if that makes sense. So for lesbians, I always say there's uh, homophobia and misogyny. And then if you're a lesbian of color, you're also dealing with racism. So all of these components play into it and just having awareness around that and then working on all those pieces and knowing ultimately that it's not your fault, it's the system we're born into, and that to help remove that shame is a huge piece of the healing and that you can just, like, take that off of yourself. And the rewards are pretty awesome, aren't they? Yeah, they really are awesome. That's beautiful. Can you share where people can learn more about you, take your courses, buy your books? Think, yeah. So uh, my website is uh, www.drlaurencostine.com. The book is Lesbian Love Addiction, Understanding the Urge to Merge and How to Heal When Things Go Wrong. And then my course, uh, you can go on the website, my Dr. Lauren Costine website, and find the information for the course. And um, we could also have a conversation about it if you just email me at Dr. Lauren, Dr. Lauren at laurencostine.com.
Beautiful. Thank you again for joining me. You're awesome. Thank you so much, August. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you haven't, you could also listen along on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazzell, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.